Welcome to AAUP Presents, a new podcast by the American Association of University Professors. I'm your host, Mariah Quinn. Today, we'll be discussing the 2020-2021 Annual Report on the Economic Status of the Profession before taking a deeper dive into the issue of institutional debt, which is covered in a special section of the report. In addition to that section, this year's annual report outlines how years of unstable funding, combined with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, have created an existential threat to shared governance and academic freedom in higher education in a way that severely weakens our nation's ability to effectively educate our communities. I'm joined on the podcast today by Glenn Colby and Eleni Shermer. Glenn is the senior researcher at the National Office of the AAUP. Eleni is a research associate on UCLA's Initiative for the Future of Finance, which is part of the Institute on Inequality and Democracy. We'll start with Glenn and a little background on the AAUP's annual report on the economic status of the profession. Back in 1958, AAUP established an annual survey to, um, out of a concern about salaries for faculty who might be leaving the profession to go into other to go into industry and so forth. So there, were, there was a concern about wages at that time, um, sort of a competition concern. And that concern continues today. So that's why we continue to do the survey. Okay. And what are the elements of the survey? So we collect uh, base salary for full-time faculty members and information about benefits, which at this point is limited to medical insurance and retirement benefits and dependent tuition benefits. Um, but in the past was broader. Um, and in, in uh, recent years, it's become more and more difficult to collect that information, but we still collect some benefits information. And we do collect uh, administrator salaries for, for key administrators, presidents, chancellors, financial officers, and so forth, as well as some information about some part-time faculty members, th those who are paid on a per course sec section basis. This year's report also includes a follow-up survey on the COVID-19 pandemic, which documents institutional responses to the pandemic that included salary freezes or reductions, elimination or reduction of fringe benefits, and terminations or non-renewals of faculty appointments. So, as you can imagine, our annual survey does not ask questions specific to events during a given year, we, it, it, we ask, we collect salary data, but, but this year we felt that it would be important to ask a handful of specific questions about the impact of the pandemic. And what we found, so, so what we asked was, have there been um, cuts, layoffs? Have there been salary freezes, terminations? tenure clock modifications, uh, um, that type of thing. And what we found is, um, and I'll go over some of the, the key findings here. Um, so more than half of institutions responding to our survey uh, froze or reduced salaries. And we also found that uh, more than a quarter 
uh, reduced or eliminated some fringe benefits, including medical insurance in the time of a pandemic. So um, we, we felt it was important to capture that this, this year. Do you expect to have some element of that in the upcoming survey as well, given that the pandemic is continuing? Yes. So we will be in a better position to make a comparison in the coming year because we will have a full academic year um, of data available for the comparisons. So um, the survey this year, the, the COVID, COVID-19 specific survey was just asking, were there changes, were there cuts, were there freezes? For this coming year survey, we will be able to quantify those differences um, and and uh, better characterize the, the impact. In addition to the special section on the pandemic, the report also looked at the rise of contingency and the growth of administrative staff. So, as you can imagine, I mean, the, the, the term contingency, contingency itself highlights the, the tenuous nature of their employment. And in this particular year, who was most likely to, to be hurt? And it was the contingent faculty. So um, we uh, did a historical analysis of the, the federal numbers on, on uh, faculty employment and determined that in the most recent year available, uh, 63% of faculty members are employed on a contingent basis. Um, so they, they do not have the job security or benefits or just support in general of full-time uh, uh, tenure-line faculty members. So, um, so those are the, the people impacted the most. And furthermore, they are more likely to be women and faculty of color. So there's there's an implication there that women and faculty color faculty of color in higher education were impacted disproportionately. And next year's survey, we should be able to actually quantify that. Um, another uh, area that you examined in the report was the growth um, in terms of administrative staff and salaries. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is time and time again, this topic comes up where we hear anecdotal evidence that administrations are growing, uh, salary expenditures and just number of administrators. Um, but it's hard to find uh, solid numbers on that. So we decided to actually analyze the, the federal numbers on that, that topic um, so that we could know for sure, is it, is it real or imagined growth? And it's real growth. So the, um, over the last 10 years, um, there was a 12% growth in management 
employees across higher education in the U.S. Um, in terms of um, salaries, the the salaries like among public institutions grew 24% during that same time over the last 10 years. So, and in comparison with faculty salaries, that, that only increased 9%. So, so there is administrative bloat and um, this documents that. For the rest of the podcast, we're going to go more in depth on the topic of institutional debt. This year's study examined the explosion of institutional debt, which might limit an institution's options for dealing with adversity in the time period from 2008-9 to 2018-19. Eleni starts us off. So institutional debt is basically the money that universities and colleges borrow um, to operate. So it basically is the response to you know, declining tax revenue or sort of an abandonment of, of taxing wealthy individuals and corporations has reduced state tax revenue. Um, and as a result, universities have less resources and in order to cover operating costs, they have to, to borrow funds. And they do this by taking on institutional debt. Long-term debt at public institutions grew 50.2%, while long-term debt among private institutions grew 116% since fiscal year 2008-2009. Here's more on the numbers from Glenn. Yeah, so similar to student debt, institutional debt has ballooned up to $336 billion of long-term debts. Um as of the 2018-19 fiscal year. So it's um, it's an indication that higher education in general is being financed by debt, either at the student level, which is well over a trillion dollars. It's in the, uh, the numbers show, but also at the institution level. And this is the result of years of underfunding for higher education, there were cuts um, coming out of the, you know, during the Great Recession. And it's just now um, getting back to the same levels of funding prior to the Great Recession. And so it's just an indication that debt is just woven into the fabric of higher ed at this point. And we, we need to account for that and come up with new funding models for higher education. Eleni sees a clear link between how colleges and universities have approached reopening during the pandemic and the role of institutional debt. The, the issue sort of came into focus for me ar- around this time of year last year, at the end of summer, the beginning of fall, when contrary to seemingly all public health guidelines, campuses across the country, including my own University of Wisconsin, where I was finishing up a, grad, a graduate degree, were opening, putting students and workers at great health risk. And that started to raise questions about exactly what's driving the need for reopening. Why do universities have to keep their doors open? What's in their bottom line? 
Delaney says beyond the billions spent on debt service, there are deeper questions we need to ask about the role of institutional debt in higher education. The ambiguity about whether debt, if we should think about debt as a kind of money coming in or a kind of money going out, I think that kind of ambiguity is part of what's made it um, invisible to a lot of the political questions in higher education that we, it has been sort of, we've been told, at least I, I have been told that debt is a, is a sort of necessary neutral budgeting tool that universities have to take on debt to do X, Y, and Z things. And we only sort of consider what it brings into universities without thinking about what, not just the financial costs that it creates, but also there's some real, it introduces a set of power relationships onto universities um, and disciplines universities according to the logics of credit and debt uh, that I think are quite important for, for folks who are concerned with the, the you know, democratic livelihoods of our public, our higher education institutions. They're, it's an important dimension. Institutional debt chips away at the idea that higher education is meant to serve the public good. So we have cr- universities have credit scores and those scores are a function of how private financial companies, credit rating agencies, Moody's, the, you know, Standards and Poor's, Fitch's are some of the, the big ones, how they evaluate universities' likelihood to default on a loan. This is very different. A university's likelihood to default on a loan is very different than the kind of instructional quality that they can offer or the public good that they contribute. So a credit score will downgrade a university, a credit rating agency will downgrade a university's credit score based on what they perceive are risks. And what they perceive are risks are things like very strong faculty governance models, uh, strong labor movements that would command uh, high wages for workers on a university. Um, the degree that a university is embedded in a state legislature system. If a university has to first go to get approval from a state legislature to, for example, raise tuition, that's a big right red flag for a credit rating agency because that could potentially put the brakes on uh, what they call being able to sort of respond to a fiscal emergency by, for example, raising tuition really high next week or laying off workers yesterday, shutting down what we've seen happen, shutting down whole programs in response to to financial disasters like COVID. Institutional debt can have a real impact on democratic governance and the role of faculty, students, and staff at colleges and universities. So at the end of the day, I think this is an important thing for us to think about for those of us who are concerned about sort of the democratic governance of our universities, if we're concerned about workers' rights on our campus, if we're concerned about our students' ability to afford this, even the most sort of nobly minded administrators in some ways are responding to the criteria that are established by creditors and credit rating agencies, not by their own communities. The AAUP plans to expand research tools for faculty members interested in issues of institutional finance. As Eleni explains, there remain many unanswered questions about debt in higher education. One of the one of the things that really I think still needs to come into focus is how much interest is being paid to financial institutions on this debt. Where's that? Where's this money? Someone's making a bunch of money off of this. Is it going back 
back into public budgets? You know, the interest that's being made on this, is it kind of part of this sort of widening? Is it, is it, a, is it a tool of, of widening income inequality that we're also seeing? And I think figure, being able to kind of like do a little bit more of the legwork to figure out what were the terms that this debt was taken on for exactly how much money of our students' tuitions of our employees' pay is going to pay for interest and fees for financial uh, institutions. For those who want to organize around the issue of institutional debt, it starts with a Google search. Encourage folks to basically find their financial statement from their campus, which really isn't that hard to do. It's a, a Google search that's like name of your university, annual financial report, open up that document. And really, the it can just start by doing a control F and looking for the word debt in that document and just hitting through it, just scrolling through and seeing what you can find. So the first step for organizing it is to just kind of help people see what this problem is. So I think that's still, I think there's still a lot of... I think we're still in that phase of the organizing personally of just trying to see more clearly what the what this problem is and how how it's working. Where do we go from here? Eleni says it's time to put faculty and students first and creditors last. A true new deal for higher education requires significantly increased public financing, as well as addressing institutional debt in order to achieve greater equity in higher ed. And oftentimes bond covenants legally stipulate that creditors will get paid first and foremost. They, it actually, in some cases, allows these documents, allow creditors to what they call intercept funds from the university so that monies that could go to, um, you know, paying for workers or salaries or, or uh, you know, reducing students' tuitions, creditors actually have their first right to those. And I think we should begin to think about, I think, you know, where we go from here is to begin to think about what it would mean if creditors were to, if we were to flip those covenants and that creditors and, and the, you know, investors in universities got paid only after workers had been kept safe and compensated for their labor and students had been, uh, you know, given all of the instructional care that they need from small class sizes to, uh, you know, reasonable to free tuition, um, that only when those amounts, when those budget items have been fulfilled, then we've talked about what it is that we need to pay, you know, Wall Street for the money that it loaned us. I think greater investment is also, I think it's important just to underscore too, that this is an important piece for people that are concerned about making higher education more diverse or more equitable, that equitably financing it is a huge part of the issue because the really basic rule of credit is that the people that have the most pay the least and the people who have the least end up paying the most. And that if anybody is concerned about equitable higher education and is willing to operate universities on that principle, it's, um, it, it's going to thwart the, the larger aims of, of diverse and equitable higher education when the poorest institutions are actually the ones that are paying the most to, to keep their doors open. Many thanks to Eleni and Glenn for joining us on the podcast. 
You can read the full annual report on the economic status of the profession with that special section on institutional debt on our website at aup.org. For those who want to get involved in the work around institutional debt and other pressing issues in higher ed, please check out our campaign website, newdealforhighered.org. This podcast is a production of the AAUP. I'm your host, Mariah Quinn. Thanks for joining us.